Uh, good to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us. Uh, if you're a guest, we like to say welcome home. We're glad that you're here. And if you're looking for a church home, please consider Vero Christian Church. We'd love to be a part of your spiritual family. We also welcome those who are joining us live stream. Always glad to have you with us in spirit. Uh, and I've met some folks who've coming back. Some of our snowbirds are flying back into town. Good to see you. Met Jesus this morning, so he's in the crowd. Have my picture taken with Jesus. So it's always good to have Jesus here. Amen? All right. So what? Yeah, well, he's here. So we've been in a sermon series entitled Hidden Christmas through the month of December. And so we've already had some messages, obviously. Last week we were talking about the mothers of Jesus. So we looked at the genealogy in Matthew, the mothers of Jesus. We're all about equal time here. So we're going to look at the fathers of Jesus this morning. We remember that an angel appeared to the shepherds and made a pronouncement. An angel appeared to Mary and made a pronouncement. We also want to remember there was an angel that appeared to Joseph and said some things. And we learned some things from that angel that we don't learn from any of the others. Let's get that scripture before us. Our scripture work is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. So it's kind of a long passage, but we'll have the uh, verses up here on the screen as we go through. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet, Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, three things this morning, three things we learn about Jesus from this passage. Now, we could learn a lot, but these three, number one, Jesus is God. Okay, Jesus is God. Steve, I believe that. Okay, well, let's believe it again. Jesus is God. There's a lot of ways that Matthew drives this home in his gospel, but in this passage right here and with what the angel says, this verse in particular, the last one that we read, it's Matthew 1.23. It's quoting Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's a very striking and startling statement, especially coming from a Hebrew worldview, a Jewish worldview. Matthew is a, a Jew. He's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. You know, back in uh, other religions, for instance, for instance Eastern pantheistic monism, those type of religions would be Buddhism and Hinduism. God is basically a world soul and we're all part of it and we blend into it. And so the tree is God and the chair is God and you are God and we're all God. Not so with the Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew worldview was God is separate from the creation. God created, created the earth, everything that inhabits the world, but he is totally separate, absolutely separate from his creation. The word holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word means separate, holy is separate, different from the creatures that he has created. And so, when the, when the angel says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, God is with us, the second person of the Godhead, the, the Logos, became flesh, very striking, startling statement. And sometimes we get a little bit comfortable you know, having grown up in the church like a lot of us have, we're a little bit familiar with that. We're not as struck by it as perhaps we should be. J.I. Packer puts it this way. 
God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality, and the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. The Incarnation, as far as we are concerned and how it impacts us, it's an inflection point in a person's life. We may have some engineers in this group this morning. I know we did in the last service. And so you know what an inflection point is. On a graph, you've got the line where the line begins to curve. That's the inflection point. It's the turning point. So when we, you encounter God, it's, a turning, it's an inflection point. It's a turning point in your life. You say, Steve, why didn't you just say turning point then? Because I like inflection point. And it makes us think a little bit deeper maybe and harder. So it's a turning point. We noted before a couple of weeks ago that when people encountered Jesus in the Gospels, they had, they had dramatic reactions to him. Nobody was ambivalent. I mean, some people worshipped him and some people loved him and some people hated him or rejected him or wanted to kill him. But nobody was ambivalent when they encountered Jesus. It always impacted people significantly. Turned lives upside down. Let me give you just one example. I'm going to go roundabout to get there, though. Let me give you a few words here. I'm going to give you a few words of a speech from a president. And you tell me, see if you can tell me what the speech is. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. Conceived in liberty. What? Yeah. Gettysburg Address. Who gave the speech? Abraham Lincoln. Now, we may have some history buffs here, some people who love uh, Civil War, not because necessarily you were there, but because you're... You like history, and so let me, let me get a little deeper here. Now, how long was the Gettysburg Address? Or you wouldn't know this, but I know because I researched this. 275 words. How long did it take Abraham Lincoln to give that speech? Anybody know or want to make a guess? Somebody, I think somebody heard it. It was, said it, two minutes. 275 words, two-minute speech. Makes my 22-minute sermons seem long-winded by comparison. And yet, it was one of the most impactful and significant presidential speeches everywhere. We're all familiar with it. But I want you to remember that math, okay? 275 words, about two minutes. Now, in the Gospels, in John chapter 4, Jesus has a pretty well-known encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. So they have a discussion there at the well. Remember that story? So I went back and counted how many words he spoke to her. And it was 204 words. When they're translated into English, it's 204 words. So how long did he speak to her? Okay, so Gettysburg Address, 275 words, two minutes. Jesus spoke 204 words, 70 words less, one-third less, basically. So how long did he talk? Less than two minutes, I'm going to say. He spoke to her less than two minutes. Now, it's it's, it's an exchange, a conversation. She said some words to him. She said fewer words than he did. So the whole conversation maybe lasted, I'm going to say, three minutes, of which he is talking less than two minutes. And yet at the, at the end of that encounter, this woman's life is turned upside down, isn't it? She is never the same. She runs back to the Samaritan village, becomes one of his most effective evangelistic witnesses, 
scores of people come out and they become believers in Jesus because of her testimony. If you know her lifestyle, her life was completely turned upside down. How do you account for that? In less than two minutes, conversation with a stranger. Well, for one thing, the last four words of Jesus' 204 words were these. I am the Messiah. With the emphasis on I am. At the end of his ministry, Jesus had convinced Hebrew-thinking people, his closest followers, that he was God. And then thousands and thousands, shortly after his resurrection, became believers that he was God. There was something about this man and what he did and what he said and who he was that impacted people's life. Kind of like uh, the cue ball that breaks the rack of billiard balls and they all go shooting in different directions communicated his energy and his power to them and changed people's lives. So let's beware. One thing we have to beware of, us lifers, long-term Christians growing up in church, is that we don't become too familiar with these truths. Like those in Jesus' hometown, and he went, he went to his hometown, he couldn't do anything significant there because, hey, we know this guy. We grew up with this guy. We've known him since we were children. He was a child. We know his parents. You can't become too familiar with Jesus. Like I said, we believe these things. I know most of us do. Let's believe them again and be impacted with the truth. Jesus is God. All right, here's another one, and you kind of see this coming. Not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is human. He's also human. Matthew 1 20, the child within her, within Mary. He's the, the God man. He's both divine and he's human. He's one of us. So when, as John would call him, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, the math that takes place there is not subtraction, it's addition. So when Jesus, who was God, became, when the Son became Jesus of Nazareth, he did not subtract anything from his divine essence. He's no less God, he's fully God and divine, but he added a human nature to himself. So the theologians would say, he was one center of consciousness with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, fully God and fully man. So he becomes one of us. Tim Keller puts it this way. The incarnation is the universe-sundering, history-altering, life-transforming, paradigm-shattering event of history. That we know it's the dividing line of history. That everything in history, in whose story? In his story, is divided between B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Latin for in the year of our Lord. People either live before Christ or after Christ. And we're all living in the year of our Lord. I know secularists want to change that to C.E., the common era. doesn't matter. You can change the words any, any way you want to. But the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, is the most significant event, other than the resurrection, the most significant event that has ever happened in his story. His is the most powerful life and impactful life of history. But what does that mean to us practically? Okay, Jesus is God and Jesus is human. What does that mean for me? What's the significance of that to me? We could talk about a lot of things right there, couldn't we? But I'm only going to talk about two, and specifically as they relate to the incarnation. Uh, number one, it means that we disciples, the followers of Jesus, are called to live lives of humble service. This is our identity now. 
We are humble servants. Paul writes in Philippians 2.5, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Talking about attitude. What attitude is that? Well, he goes straight to the incarnation here. Though Christ was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave or a servant, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. So the attitude that we are to imitate here, the attitude of, the incar of Jesus in the incarnation is one where we humble ourselves and are willing to come and be servants and give ourselves to others in service. Just part of what we're here for. J.I. Packer, I'm going to read another statement from him, and right now I'm putting on my metaphorical steel-toed boots because this one steps on my toes a little bit. But he says, For the Son of God to empty himself and to become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. And finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for the unlovely people. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians go through the world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in the Lord's parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, seeing human needs all around us, but averting our eyes and passing by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit, but it is the spirit of some Christians, unfortunately, many, whose ambition in life seems to be limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making nice middle-class Christian friends, bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways, but who leave the marginalized of the community to get on as best they can. The Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who live like their master, who live their whole lives on the principle of spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems to be a need. It's something to remember. We're called to love the unlovely people and to serve the unlovely people. Now, I know you know that. I know we have a lot of humble servants in this church. I'm encouraged. I've been getting a lot of uh, applications from ladies who need their, the, their minister's reference so that they can go and be volunteers at CareNet, pregnancy center, so that they can help the least of these in our community. I know we have life groups who go over and serve meals at the source to homeless folks. I know we have people who will show up here at the drop of a hat when they receive a notice that we need somebody to set up chairs and tables for the seniors uh, for their luncheon. I just see these things, these acts of humble service, and I also know it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that I don't see that goes on that nobody sees. Humble service is a part of our identity. We're just remembering that this morning. But anyhow, we're just looking at this angel's pronouncement and what we learn about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is God. That is impactful to us. We learn that Jesus is human. The incarnation teaches us that we are humble servants to others. But not only the humble service part, the other application here has to do with comfort and suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 Therefore, it was necessary for Christ to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that, we could be, so that he could be rather our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Now, we mentioned this earlier in a previous message, but I want to come back to this. 
what is available to us because of the incarnation is Christ's infinite ability to comfort in suffering. Infinite ability. So when, when we're going through stuff in life, it can feel lonely. And we sometimes we can feel like we're the only ones, but we never are because Christ has been through it. I mean, let's face it. We're not in heaven yet. This is not the new heavens and the new earth. We're still on, in the old heavens and the old earth. There's still a curse, and life is short and full of trouble. And while Christ helps us to bear our suffering, he doesn't always take the suffering away. There's a difference there. And we can feel lonely, but Christ has felt lonely. And we might feel betrayed. Well, he's been betrayed. We might say, well, Steve, I've prayed prayers, and they don't seem to be answered. Well, Christ has prayed prayers and made requests when the answer was no. Maybe we suffered physically. Well, he has suffered physically. Maybe we're tempted. Well, he's been tempted more than any human being, right? Because at some point we have given in to temptation, but he never did. So he experienced a degree of temptation that was more intense than any human being has ever experienced. Now, back in the 1980s, I used to watch a lot of TV, not so much anymore, but I watched a series called Hill Street Blues in the 80s. Did we have any people here who ever watched Hill, Hill Street Blues? No, I'm not, it's not a trick question. Okay, so but let me set this up for you a little bit. So this is 1981's when it started. And so you've got Captain Frank Farillo, and he's, over, he's the captain of a, a precinct, police precinct in New York City. And for what I want to talk about, one of his detectives was John J.D. LaRue, who was an alcoholic, a drunk, wouldn't admit it, but it was interfering with his job performance. And so finally, Captain Farillo's had enough, and he calls J.D. in and reads him the right act and says, look, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. You either get into AA and recovery or you get a new job. I'm going to fire you. That's it. That's the ultimatum. So the scene I'm going to show you, I'm just, I know it's a fictional TV series, but it's portrayed so well, just a little two-minute clip of this fellow, this detective going to his first AA meeting. So I'm going to show you this and then come back and make a brief application. But you may have been able to intuit this. That is his captain who's there at the AA meeting who ordered him to go. Of course, he didn't know at the time. He's not there just to support JD. He's there because he's an alcoholic. That's his struggle too. Somebody has said, when you're suffering and when you're hurting, two of the most powerful words that you can hear or share are the words, me too. So, I don't know what you're struggling with, or what your temptation is, or what your pain is this morning, or what your break, break, brokenness is. I know what mine are. But what I'm saying here is that that's Jesus sitting in the room with us, saying to you this morning, me too. Me too. I have been there. I have felt that. I feel that. I felt the grief. I felt the pain. I felt the loneliness. I felt the suffering. And one of the reasons, I'm not saying it's the primary reason, one of the reasons God became one of us, a human being, a brother and sister just like us, was to share that with us and to help take that burden upon his shoulders. It won't be completely lifted until we get on the new earth. But for here and the now, he shoulders that with us. That's what it means. That's what it means to us. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. And Jesus finally is with us again Emmanuel which means God with us what does it mean that he's with us 
It means a lot of things, but among others, it's all we want to have a relationship with God. It's not just I'm forgiven and I'm saved. It's relationship. The reason that God redeemed us is because God wants a what? God wants a family relationship. And he's gone to all that trouble so that we can be with him. Relationship. How do you build a relationship? A lot of ways. But one of the primary ones, and especially with God, is what we call you know, the, the, the reading of the Bible and the prayer. Bible study and prayer. Bible reading and prayer. A devotional time. Not just to check it off a list, but in such a way that we can enter into relationship with the heart of God. This is challenging. I share these things from my experience in the devotional times uh, because it's hard for me because God is invisible. I know he's a person. It's hard to connect for me on that relationship level. To feel the love that we sing about, feel the joy with God as a person. So what has really helped me, and I shared this a few weeks ago, let me just revisit it, is praying Scripture. So we can read Scripture, but sometimes when I listen to my one-year Bible and a daily reading, and it's about 15 or 20 minutes long, you know, 15 or 20 minutes into it, I realize my mind went off track for a little while, and wait a minute, I missed about 10 minutes of the Scripture, I don't even remember what was said. But when I circle back around in my prayer time, and I open up that Bible on my bed, and I'm on my knees, and I convert what I read, like the psalm or a portion of the New Testament, into a prayer, and I pray that to God, it puts it in a different level, a different category. Like if you ever go to marriage counseling, and I think just about all marriages could stand a little counseling, one of the tricks you'll learn, you can learn this in other venues as well, is to say it back. Right, to say it back. Oh, so honey, this is what I understand you just said to me. And then you say it back. Why? Because it lets them know that you heard what they said and understood it and can articulate it. When you pray the Scripture back to God, and by the way, this is what I've been doing the last few weeks in our congregational prayer time, is just taking a psalm or portions of Scripture, turning them into a congregational prayer and praying them back to God. When we pray God's Scripture back to Him, we're saying it back. We're saying, God, so this is what I understand you're saying to me in your word today. And then we make it a prayer back to him. And it takes us to places we would never otherwise go in our prayer lives. And it helps connect our hearts to him in relationship. That's what he's wanted all along. That's what we're striving for. Jesus, fully God, fully human, and with us. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for reminding us of these things today. I know we believe them. We, especially so many of us grown up in the church or so familiar with, with these gospel accounts, Lord. We don't take them for granted. We want to return to our first love, be impacted by Jesus like that billiard ball, have that energy impact us, turn us upside down once again, just like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.